Just a quick heads up before we start today's episode. There's some language in today's show. All right, here it is. It's primary night in Rome, Georgia, and for an experienced political reporter, Greg Bluestein, victory parties are an obligatory stop in any race he covers. I've covered Georgia politics for about 20 years now in, in some form or fashion, and have plenty of you know, candidate victory parties for winners and losers. The race? A Republican runoff. The favorite, Marjorie Taylor Greene, has just won, and he's at her party. So I just kind of walked right in there and sat, and I knew some people, so nodded at them and sat in the back and started um, a very cramped hotel room. I think I was the a hotel conference room. I think I was the only one wearing a mask. Um, but I started kind of live tweeting what she was saying. Bluestein of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution quickly realized this wasn't the boilerplate victory speech, you know, thanking your opponent for a tough race, uh, now let's all unify and win in November kind of thing. There was no water under the bridge moment here. There was no conciliatory, like, hey, let's all make up. <laughs> this was like a napalm bomb that went off in Rome, Georgia. It was nothing but just more um, animosity. They, they are terrified because I'm going to be their worst nightmare. Woo! She had some very, very uh, controversial remarks, including calling House Speaker uh, Nancy Pelosi say, saying she wants to kick that bitch out of Congress. I just want to say to Nancy Pelosi... She's a hypocrite, she's an anti-American, and we're going to kick that bitch out of Congress. This was all unusual, maybe even surreal, but for Bluestein, the night's surprises didn't end there. Basically, within minutes of me tweeting that, that line from, from Marjorie Taylor Greene, um, her campaign manager walked up to me, and I had emailed him, and I think I had met him in the past, but he walked up to me, he just wanted to confirm who I was, and I said, oh, I'm Greg Bluestein with the Atlanta Journal, how's it going? And he goes, you need to get out of here. He, uh, he walked me out of the room, pretty much forced me out of the room, and I just went to the hotel bar because he can't stop me from going there, and ended up talking with several of her consultants and several of her supporters there. Uh, who were laughing at him for for kicking me out. But nonetheless, then I showed him the tweet I was about to send saying that I got kicked out, you know, and said, hey, I'm, I'm, this is what happened, just so you know. I'm about to press the send button on it and pressed it right there. <laughs> and, you know, that's just how it goes sometimes. But, I mean, th- this is this is not your typical candidate, not your typical campaign, and certainly not your typical victory speech. Well, hey, it gives you a lot to look forward to for November, right? <laughs> yeah, you got that right. Today on the show, a newcomer wins and looks set to become the first open public supporter of the QAnon movement with a seat in the U.S. House of Representatives and gives Republicans and reporters a challenge. I'm Ray Suarez, subbing for Mary Harris, and you're listening to What Next? Stick with us. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. 
Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Let's talk a little bit about Q itself. I'm, I'm sure listeners get bits and pieces and snatches. Maybe they see fragments of it on social media. But this is, um, even as conspiracy theories go, this is a fairly novel set of propositions about the world. Fair to say? Fair to say that, for sure. Uh, It involves a claim, an overall claim, I think I could say, that that there's a deep state conspiracy to either hobble President Trump or get him out of office to undermine his every action. But it also involves lots of code words on social media. It involves really, uh, in, in some ways, a sense of I- an ideology, an ideological belief that, that, that you can never trust um, government, no matter who's in charge. And Marjorie Taylor Greene, she has not said that she doesn't believe in it anymore, that it's discredited, that, it's just, that it has no basis in fact whatsoever. Um, she, she has maintained uh, her belief in that, uh, as far as I know, as far as everything she said, and has never backed down from it. And that became one of the things she was most known for, was, was that she believes in the QAnon ideology, really. The district where Marjorie Taylor Greene won her Republican runoff covers pretty much all of the northwest corner of Georgia, by the borders with Alabama and Tennessee. It's a district where Republican incumbent Tom Graves, who decided not to run for another term, beat his Democratic opponent 3 to 1 in 2018. So firmly Republican that winning the GOP primary means you're headed to Washington. Greg Bluestein says it's actually part of the reason Marjorie Taylor Greene ran for the vacated seat in the first place. She at first was running for the 6th district in metro Atlanta suburbs, a much more moderate district, actually a district um, where I live, where Lucy McBath, a a Democrat, won in 2018 in somewhat of an upset victory over Karen Handel. And Marjorie Taylor Greene lives in this district and originally wanted to run against Karen Handel for the Republican nomination. But then Tom Graves decided he wasn't going to run for another term. And suddenly um, she decided to move out there to northwest Georgia and run from scratch. Greg talked with Marjorie Taylor Greene back in December, just as she was switching from one race to the other. And what she had to say about the move surprised him. One of the reasons she was switching races to to move to the 14th district was because she started getting calls from some of the most conservative members in the House, the the House Freedom Caucus. Um, It was Mark Meadows' wife, Debbie Meadows, Jim Jordan, Annie Biggs, these congressmen who represent sort of the, the, the conservative, the far-right conservative flank in, in, in the U.S. Capitol, were all urging her to run in the 14th. And, and there's two reasons why, really. One is because they wanted someone who had sympathetic views in Congress to join them. That's obvious. But the second one is, I think they also wanted to clear the field for Karen Handel, because Karen Handel, who is the 6th District, former congresswoman from the 6th District, who is running in a, in a rematch against Lucy McBath, she was probably going to be forced into at least a runoff against Marjorie Taylor Greene that would have gotten national attention and really would have um, been taxing for the party and, and just just a internal fight that would have really strained resources. And so I think they I think they wanted to clear the field from her for Karen Handel. No one's ever said that, but that seems like a plausible secondary reason for getting Marjorie Taylor Greene to switch to the 14th. Now, it's one thing to see people holding up cue signs at a Trump rally or standing outside an arena where the president is about to appear wearing a cue t-shirt. It's another thing trying to think through what it would be like to have a cue believer as a member of 
Congress. Has the institutional party had much to say about her one way or the other? Yeah, you know, they didn't in the first round. Now, in Georgia, you have to have 50% plus one. You have to have a majority of the vote in order to win a, uh, an election or a primary to get your party's nomination. So in the first round, um, she really took advantage of the fact that there was no presumptive heir. There was no presumptive front runner in this race. There was about a half dozen politicians all got in, all had their own bases, all had, all had deep roots in the community for the most part, except for her. But she, she had a big advantage, a couple. She had, she had already had a campaign apparatus and she pumped about a million dollars of her own money into the campaign, which, which in Metro Atlanta might not go far, but man, in, in Northwest Georgia, where there's, there's smaller, much smaller media markets and you can just blanket the airwaves with radio ads and you can just stuff mailboxes with flyers, it went a long way. So in the first round, she got about 40% of the vote, ended up the front runner. And Dr. John Cowan, a, a neurosurgeon from Rome who was framed himself as equally conservative, but just not as, in his words, an embarrassment to the district, came in second with about half that, 20%. So after uh, the runoff field was set, you had many Georgia politicians stay on the sidelines. That includes Senator David Perdue. That includes Governor Brian Kemp. That includes Senator Kelly Leffler and Doug Collins, who were rivals in the Republican special election. And that kind of cleared the way for her to be the, uh, on the cusp of Congress right now. So to be really crystal clear about what that means, we have a politician running in a district where if you win the Republican primary, you're pretty much the presumptive winner in November under normal circumstances. You got it. We have a first-time candidate who has hinted that the 2017 Las Vegas massacre was orchestrated, Mm -hmm. who has described Black people as slaves to the Democratic Party in Georgia, and the big names in Georgia Republican politics hedged their bets, covered themselves, but none of them said, I want to be 500 miles away from this woman. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, I would say one caveat is that several did endorse Cowan or, or did condemn her remarks, but didn't do much more than that. Didn't actively, you know, vocally go out there and fight for Dr. Cowan to win this race. Because as I mentioned, I, I think you're right. I mean, hedging the bets is a, is a good frame of it. I mean, they, they figured that she was going to be the runaway winner, and she was by, by 20 points. And Democrats did what I expected them to do within minutes of Marjorie Taylor Greene winning the nomination. And that was painting her as the new face of, of, of the Republican Party in Georgia, that, that she's now you know, someone who they're going to aggressively seek to tie other Republican candidates to. In the recent past, uh, you've had in the southwest side of Chicago and the southwest suburbs, a candidate named Arthur Jones, who inexplicably won the Republican primary for Congressman Bill Lipinski's seat. And he was a former head of uh, a regional Nazi party, uh, the former head uh, and in league with the Ku Klux Klan, such as it was in that part of the country. The Republican Party froze him out, completely distanced themselves from him. There is a senatorial candidate in Oregon uh, running against Senator Jeff Merkley, the Democratic incumbent. And on the night of her primary victory, she tweeted out, where we go one, we go all. I stand with President Trump. I stand with Q and the team. But nobody thinks she's going to win. So perhaps the Republican Party of Oregon doesn't quite have a PR problem there. 
Marjorie Taylor Greene seems vocal, unapologetic, unabashed, and rich, which is, if you're, if you're trying to do the math on this one, if you're a Georgia Republican, would seem to be rather inconvenient, no? Yeah, and that's exactly why you saw the reaction from Republicans in the 24 hours or so after she won the nomination. Some stayed quiet, like Governor Kemp, like Senator Perdue. Others went to congratulate her immediately. Uh, and that includes Senator Kelly Leffler and Congressman Doug Collins from the neighboring 9th District of Georgia, another very deeply conservative district. Um, and I think they felt they had to. They said they called her an outsider who would represent Georgia's interest in the best way. And I think one of the reasons why they felt they had to is President Trump himself tweeted that she was a future Republican star. So going against her at this point, being being a Republican who said that they wanted they didn't want her in, to join the, the the House caucus, that they that they don't want her to be seated, whatever you know they might say, uh, means going directly against President Trump, who in many polls at least still remains the most popular figure among Republicans in the Republican Party um, here in Georgia, at least. So it puts them in a very um, uh, tough bind, and but privately. And I've talked to many of them privately. They don't want anything to do with her. This brings to mind another elected official from Georgia, coincidentally, a woman named Cynthia McKinney, who was a member of Congress in the early years of this young century. She was a Democrat, and she also had what I think in the view of Georgia Democrats would have been considered some fairly inconvenient beliefs, difficult to defend, difficult to ally with. And, you know, her, her time came and went. She lost her seat. Life moved on. And not that much happened. Uh, is Marjorie Taylor Greene just a Republican Cynthia McKinney? Uh, she couldn't be. I mean, there's definitely parallels um, because Republicans did their very best to try to tie Cynthia McKinney to every statewide Democrat running. Um, so you certainly saw that in the reverse happen when Cynthia McKinney was in Congress in the in the in the 2000s, and you saw a lot of institutional effort going from de- Democrats to try to oust her from that seat. So yeah, there's a chance that she's a, a brief flicker and that she fades away. But look, there's also a chance that she takes this and tries to run for statewide office or or, or leverages this for more power in the party. And really becomes a, um, a a main Republican player, not just a fringe player, but a but a main a big force in Republican politics in Georgia. And she is a um, her her views and her, her her belief in conspiracies not conspiracy theories notwithstanding. She is a magnetic speaker. You can see why people are drawn to her. She makes all sorts of accusations that that are unfounded and and have no basis in fact whatsoever. But they appeal to voters because they're so out there. As a reporter, whenever I've covered fringe candidates, uh, there's been a couple of different models for how to handle that. Some of are are unapologetically out there and will tell you at the drop of a hat about their novel theories about the world, while some are more cagey in an attempt to seem more plausible, uh, to seem more composed and more legit, and will not engage when you try to talk to them about some of their more unusual beliefs. If you called Marjorie Taylor Greene's press person and said, I'd like to come over, sit and talk with her for a while to get an understanding of what this is all about, what she believes, would they play? Um, 
it's a great question because early on, she, that is exactly what she wanted to do. She wanted to see more mainstream. I mean, we met right when she jumped in for Congress uh, in the in, in the her first uh, her first seat she was running for in the, in the more moderate suburbs of Atlanta. We met at a local coffee shop and we had a a very uh, you know good discussion about her her campaign. And frankly, it just seemed sort of mainstream Republican to me. Maybe she was trying to write, run a little bit to Karen Handel's right. Uh, she was going to attack Karen Handel for her votes on the budget. But she's just seemed like another kind of self-funder outside a Republican candidate who is going to paint anyone like Karen Handel, who's been in office here and here and there in Georgia for you know the last two decades. She's going to paint Karen Handel as, as another creature of the swamp, right? So that's sort of the lens we took um, with her, uh, frankly, and if you look at our first story on her, it was a pretty, you know, neutral story about how she was trying to run to Karen Handel's right, but there's nothing, there's nothing too eyebrow raising about it. And then, and then you saw her kind of transform as a candidate into who she is now. Now that presents an interesting challenge, I would suggest, for a reporter covering a race. In our business, uh, we try to take one step back from describing beliefs as implausible or preposterous or or putting any value judgment on it. I mean, the normal way we do our jobs week in and week out, we'll give a general description of a philosophy or belief and then just sort of leave it there. But Q seems so out there that that almost seems insufficient to the task. You you hit the nail on the head. Um you know, in journalism school, you're always taught to to be impartial, neutral, objective, dispassionate observers um, who can report, you know, without bias on on whatever the topic is. But when you get to sort of dangerous ideologies and conspiracy theories that that undermine trust in in, in our basic democratic foundations, that's when. <laughs> It calls on us to do more as reporters. And one of the things that we've been doing and other outlets have certainly been doing too is saying straight up, you know, baseless conspiracy theory. It's discredited in all sort of, and that the FBI has considered naming it a domestic terrorism threat. Um, And then there are some advocates in the journalism world who think we should be doing much more. Uh, and there's and there's a there there's an argument to say that too that that every story should have several paragraphs several, you know go in, go into greater detail about just how dangerous this conspiracy theory is and and how how fringe beliefs could go from fringe to the mainstream or at least to a a force in politics in a matter of years. There are many people out there who are concerned that QAnon could, including many people within the Republican Party who have gone public. Uh, who are worried that not just with Marjorie Taylor Greene, but there are more than a dozen other candidates for congressional seats who believe, or or at least are allies with the QAnon movement. Many are out, you know, long shots, but some are like Marjorie Taylor Greene, who are favorites to win the race. If it's the case that Marjorie Taylor Greene ends up being one of the first of several new members of Congress radicalized by the QAnon ideology, it means Republicans in the House will have to face one question over and over again. Should this person be seated come January? Greg's colleague in Washington asked Nancy Pelosi herself earlier this week about Green's victory. You said yesterday that Republicans seem to be comfortable with a QAnon supporter in their ranks, but I'm curious what you think about Marjorie Taylor Greene being elected to Congress most likely, and what was your reaction when she called you the B-word? I don't, you know what, do you know how little attention I pay 
when the uh, president of the United States calls me uh, horrible things. I, I don't pay too attention to that. It's a, a judgment to be made about them as to who they welcome into their... But she also added that it'll be up to Republicans to decide whether they want to seat someone who believes in, in these values, and it'll be up to them. And I think um, there'll be a lot of... Uh, you know, study going into at least at least groups will be making sure that Republicans are informed. Uh, fellow her her fellow Republican House colleagues are informed of all of her views um, before January. Uh, Greg Bluestein, thanks a lot for your time and uh, and good luck. Glad to join you. Greg Bluestein is a politics reporter at the Atlanta Journal Constitution. And that's the show. What Next is produced by Mary Wilson, Danielle Hewitt, and Jason DeLeon, with help from Daniel Avis. Let me know what you're thinking of these guest-hosted episodes. I'm on Twitter, at Ray Suarez News. Back tomorrow with more What Next. <laughs>